Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Right, so this is the very first episode where all three microbrimphies are together and this is the first time it's ever happened. Every other time has been on Zoom. So thank you very much to Nabil and for Lee, you know, flying over from America just for this episode. But we're also joined by uh, Torsten Seaman as well, who is going to keep us on track. So today we're going to talk about a loss in translation, the barrier between research, bioinformatics, and what actually happens in the real world in public health. So Torsten, do you have any questions for us? We haven't seen you in a long time, mate. You no. were back on episode six. We're up, to, you know, it's been a few years. I know, like most of you, I've been hibernating for various reasons, COVID pandemic related work. I'd love to sort of hear what kind of trials and tribulations and fun you had working in COVID so we could compare war stories from the pandemic. Absolutely. Not the boring stuff, the fun stuff. The fun stuff. <laughs> Well, I mean, we had a lot more COVID than you guys. You, you know, being a huge island, you know, kept it all out. Whereas we had a, a constant flow and a lot more business. Britain is also an island. <laughs> don't, don't tell anyone that. Eh? It's true. We did close our borders, but we had lots of citizens returning, tra- return travellers. So return travellers were all our introductions. So. Yeah. That was something quite different to what many countries experience. So, so you had high quality epi then, you know, to trace all of these back and quarantine and you kept it all out no matter what. Yeah, we had lots of good epi about hotel quarantine and travel history. And yeah, even things like f- picking up in-flight transmissions was quite an interesting. That, that was in the early stages of that. That was of great interest to the federal government. Like, were there being in-flight transitions? And we had a couple of analyses where, yeah, there was a lot of evidence that the transmission actually happened during the flight because you know two separate countries, people getting on the same plane at Singapore, for example, which is a big hub for Asia Pacific, and then you know looking at the data genomically proved that it couldn't have probably happened any other way except within the aeroplane itself so that became a big concern and I think that resulted in you know some policy around masks and separation of people in airplanes and higher filtration levels and things like that and also the flights are long enough that you could get on a plane and 17 hours later you know you won't go from negative to positive and you know highly symptomatic yeah I wonder if they were doing rat tests weren't really around yet at that point but it would have been fascinating to do rat <laughs> tests every six hours during the flight yeah. and to see the progression of the disease or uh, PCR, you know, rapid PCR on the plane. Could you even do that? I'm not a lab person, but uh, I'm sure you could put a lab in a, a small lab in a box. Do you we gotta try that. Do you need a centrifuge? I think so. <laughs> I, to, to spin down. Let's not reveal how ignorant we are <laughs> at this point. Must <laughs> know biology. Well, I recall, you know, the back in the day when minine was being used in the field by ecologists and stuff. That you know, the, one of the arguments was, well, the minine part's easy. How do you extract the DNA and make the sample? And you know, there was this uh, nanopore had their bolt tracks that never really quite worked. But I heard that some people in the field, you needed a centrifuge, and they were um, 
they were using their four-wheel drive axle. They were using the wheel to drive a <laughs> centrifuge from the four-wheel drive. That's brilliant. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. So I think a centrifuge must be an important part of the spinning down process. I remember for Nanopora, some people going out to like schools to do demos and all that, and, you know, rather than uh, they just heat stuff up in their hands, you know, just hold and the body heat would, you know, warm it up to the required temperature. Ah, oh, so instead of the old school way of thermocycling from moving from water bath yeah, yeah. to water bath, they would hands. like use their hands yeah. and... Oh, yeah. We've got solid spinners actually now, like uh, which are little, you know, centri- manual centrifuges. Work quite well, quite cheap. I think you do need though. I think you do need the centrifuge though for certain things. Like when I was twenty-five years ago, when I was in the lab, we'd have to I, we'd have to purify DNA using that kind of technique with the kaya kits and stuff. So we'll have to try it. Can, can I actually lab in a box on a flight? Lee here has pointed out that he has done some bench work in the past. Have either Nabil or Andrew? Have you done any lab work? Mm-hmm. I Ever? stopped doing biology when I was about 16, so I did zero bench work. I've done two PCRs and one of them worked. So, yeah, so <laughs> I, I have actually done se- I, I, <laughs> I have done seven days of molecular biology training. I, our Monash University had a famous annual course called the Recombinant DNA Training Course, and it was to a lot of people used it for their continuing education to get refreshed. And I asked if I could do it because I wanted, you know, I was only in bioinformatics, and I wanted to get a feel for what actually happens on the bench, so I could better understand the processes. And so they let me do it, and you know, you got paired up with a tutor, and yeah, we did everything. We did DNA extraction, virus extraction from a plant that they had this infected plant that they gave everyone a leaf and you had to extract DNA virus had to clone a gene into a vector had to express that did capillary sequencing my sequence turned out terrible it didn't work at all it must have been a mixture or something (laughs) but yeah I really got to do it all and I actually won the destruction award because I dropped my timer and the battery it smashed and the battery fell over the lab floor I overwhelmed my pipette on one of the settings and nearly broke it. And then I spilled, when I was flaming, you know how you do this flaming thing with the bottle to keep things sterile or whatever. I spilled alcohol yep. on the bench and the bench caught oh fire for a bit. Oh my God. This so is yeah, the destruction award? It, it, dis- destruction. 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 <laughs> yeah, most students do one of those things. <laughs> yeah, I did all three. And so it made it clear that bioinformatics was the right career choice for me. <laughs> yeah. No one can say you're not comprehensive <laughs> and <laughs> thorough <laughs> did you say you did this all in a week off yeah, in a week <laughs> so it started on sunday start on sunday and it went from 8 p.m to 6 p.m every day you're doing multiple experiments in parallel and theory and practice it was the most intense week of my life and the following week i fell ill with cytomegalovirus and i was sick for three months I think this stress of this course must have triggered something. Wow. And I was I was out for months with yeah. With fevers every night for three months. That's how much that's, <laughs> that's what, just from lab work. Lab work induced maybe, fevers. Maybe, exactly. maybe it was an infected plant. No, no, I think it was something I I was told that CMV, cytomegalovirus, I mentioned it to a couple of colleagues and they said, Oh, oh you're a new dad, that's normal. And it turns out that new fathers, so most of the population has CMV already, latent, but you know, about 20% of the population apparently doesn't have it. And mm. clearly I didn't get to kiss enough girls or something when I was young, so I never caught it. So he said it's common in new fathers because babies get it and they're not affected by it and they shred, shed it in their urine. And I was changing a lot of nappies. Yeah. <laughs> and he says it's classic presentation, new dad CMV. 
So no other doctor said it, but he, as soon as I said it, he said, yeah, you dad. I see it all the time. So yeah, I wasn't new dad at the time. So and lack of sleep, intense course. Yeah. If you don't have kids, then obviously just to paint a picture, you know, when you boys, they piss everywhere when you uh, try and change your nappies. Yeah, they, a lot of yeah. airborne streams of fluid. Absolutely, yeah. Can confirm it. A different kind of aerosol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I promise I washed my hands, but he obviously can't account for everything. I had a, I had a sort of, I had an experience also when I first joined CDC. I was, you know, one of the first bioinformaticians and I was going to be at the computer all the time. And then they said... No, you need to learn how to run PFGE. And they forced me into the lab for a couple of days. And I did run PFGE. I did quite well. I can, f I can find that gel somewhere, probably. I had really good bands, they complimented me. And I never wanted to go back again. <laughs> but it helped me be part, a better member of the team to, to be in there with everybody else. Yeah, like I, yeah, I had a great appreciation for what goes on. and especially where errors can creep in and why things don't always work out. I think that it's a, it's a great exercise to go through. Whereas my experience in the lab is I have posed for some photos with a pipette and some buffer, you know? I've done it a few times now to make it look like I'm a scientist. We're not allowed to take photos of the, anything in the laboratory. It's against the law. Oh, really? You need to get special permission to take photos of any lab stuff because it's a public health lab. Is Biosecurity that, related. I think. That's like legislated or is it part well, of the policy? It's, it's probably just the health law. I don't know. Okay. So during the pandemic, I found uh, it was quite interesting going from research and then seeing insights into public health labs, you know, because in research, we just do things kind of not willy nilly, but, you know, we're, we're more adventurous with uh, what kind of protocols we'll do and we'll tweak stuff left, right and centre. We may not run controls every time. Whereas in public health, you know, it's quite a different environment, as you guys well know. Yeah, I guess having moved from research to public health, I sort of, I also noticed that as well. And it's very, it's very frustrating when you first start. You feel like nothing, you can't get anything done and it's too much, too many rules and steps, but it's all for good reasons. I mean, these decisions, the decisions that get made from what we present are real decisions. Yeah. So in the pandemic, like our genomic results um, directly discovered a major hotel quarantine outbreak and also there was a, a big giant residential tower that was immediately locked down and due to the results that we presented and you know this affected people being locked in their building for like weeks and so yeah you want to make sure 100% that what you're presenting is correct and not just contamination or a sample swap exactly it's a little flattering that they listen to you though also yeah, we'd already built a good relationship with our Department of Health, you know, doing genomics for foodborne pathogens, and they built a lot of trust in the results. And it wasn't just a genomics, we always did it in consultations with the EPIs and, you know, the department admin. And so that relationship really was established before COVID came along. And then with COVID, they really put a lot of trust into us. And we took it seriously. We didn't just, like you said, present results willy nilly. We sort of poured over them, made sure we were, had some degree of confidence in what we were telling them. From the bioinformatics point of view, it wasn't really a lot of it wasn't my responsibility. The epis took the the, the genomic epis took the, the front of the questions and stuff. But yeah, we were there in all meetings. There were bioinformaticians in all important meetings in the pandemic, and now in all department meetings, there's always a bioinformatician because we need that you know that support to the epis when that questions get asked and. They, you know, they're trying to assess how real the results are. Then we can sort of say, you know, with COVID, there's missing data, so samples can migrate in the tree and things like that. So it's just been an amazing transformation from bioinformatics being in the basement type approach to now they're being in the front of house, 
as a first-class citizen along with the epis and the medical microbiologists. Incredible. There was one study that you did that I came across, and actually this is the first chance I have to, to tell you about it, I think. When I was pulled into the response for COVID, one of the things I had to do was figure out if people could get reinfected. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's like a lifetime ago now. But back then we had, I think, about like three months of data or something. This is all published. And I had to help them with the genomics of figuring out if if somebody, like if we had, we had certain cases we could look at before and after, like infection one, infection two, and we could look at the results in between also. And figuring out if it's the same genome in infection one, infection two. And I was like, maybe I'll do like an all versus all comparison, see what it looks like. I'll check the literature and see if anyone else has done this. And I found one of your papers and you did exactly what I was thinking and you already published it in a preprint. Do you remember this one? Was that a hospital, a small number of samples? Um, My memory has been a bit damaged from COVID pandemic. (laughs) I really struggled to remember all the projects we did. I don't remember. So yeah, I don't have this in front of me either. I think you had like... But there was ones where we had multiple samples of patients over time and looking at intra-host diversity versus inter-patient diversity and stuff like that. It was really hard. It was a hard project because, you know, the data's a bit... Question one. I think we only really looked at it from the consensus level. What we should have done if we had time is to go back and look at the raw FASTQ data because two separate yeah. infections, one of them, if, if it was close enough, could have been a mixture or a, yeah. you know, a, a minor allele fraction in that original sample that then became the dominant clone in the second infection. Like, was it late in all that time or was it a new infection? That, yeah, that's a common question we got and we just didn't have time to look at most of it. But I think there's a lot of people now who look going back to data that's been deposited. Like, as I know, the US and the UK have been awesome at depositing their FASTQ data. So a lot of these studies can be done, assuming the metadata about what cases were from the same patient is available. Yeah, we had very little metadata, especially because we had to get from the states and get permission and all that. But yeah, you have to make sure the metadata is good because you can't just, you can't go at it alone with just genomics. And you could add the SARIN project, which was to sample healthcare workers and then sequence them. So the idea is that healthcare workers would be first in the front line. You know, if there if there is reinfections, they would the ones who were infected first. And uh, they did find some in the end. Of course, I've had COVID three times now, so I can tell you now that you can get reinfected. But there's all these uh, thresholds to put in, like you know, we're, you have to have 90 days between the first positive test and the second, just to make sure or try and make sure that you know you're not just seeing the same thing again that's just popped up again yeah well actually talking about we haven't caught up in a few years so yeah so so coming out of hibernation you know from the last three years of finally getting to meet you guys in person again i speaking to andrew andrew you you were telling me that you were involved in the covid response and you're at a research organization i just assumed that only public health labs were involved in the covid response and can you tell me a bit more about like how you were involved in the UK crowdsourcing effort? Yeah, so basically a conference you go to every two years, ABPHM, and essentially half that conference just were pulled into the COG UK project. Um, because you already all knew each other, most people were working on, on bacteria actually, and so it was just all these pre-existing links were uh, tapped very rapidly by, you know, like Nick Lohman and Sharon Peacock and people like that, all the big names, and they're all folded in and so we just became one of the, the, the labs doing sequencing for the COG UK project 
and yeah like I shared an office with a guy called Tom Connor who uh, part time and he was doing Public Health Wales and so he was like oh you know do you guys want to come in on this and I said yeah sure why not we can do sequencing we got sequencers we got staff everyone wanted to help you know everyone was super enthusiastic and so that's how we initially got into doing the sequencing and the idea was basically everyone would tap into their local hospitals and we share a campus with the regional diagnostic unit for doing viral uh, testing and so we could get samples very easily and so that's how that kind of got started and then it kind of snowballed from there you know we're doing more and more and we're doing bioinformatics analysis and then we started doing national uh, surveillance and we're doing international studies so you know it all kind of expanded from there and we we're research you know but we we're doing you know production level stuff so every week week in week out we had to get samples in and out the door and do it right and uh, you know all the additional quality controls that you'd have in a public health lab we had to start enforcing ourselves where did those protocols come from were they shared with you or and how did the governance of the data work like it was made up on the fly everything you know everything happened at pace you know so the protocols came from like josh quick he developed the arctic protocol we just uh, basically primers made up slightly in advance and uh, because we figured we'd do a little bit of this and it's got them made up and then they're just ready to go you know and we're actually up and running very very fast within about eight days of giving an odd we're up and running uh, sequencing uh, in production which is kind of cool the, what slowed us down was paperwork but the, even that was done super fast you know all the ethics all the contracts everything was signed like it was all faster. expedited very quickly and, and we're talking like march like early 2020 right we started sample collection on the 8th of april 2020 <laughs> And then we finished sequencing mid-April 2022. Yeah. So we did over two years. Two years. Every single week, including Christmas. Yeah, I still remember February the 14th, 2020, Valentine's Day in Melbourne. It was a Friday and my boss said to me, Tors, you and the Bimfies should probably not come in next week. We might have to work from home for a little while. <laughs> Two and a half years later, we're still working from home. Yeah. <laughs> still sequencing COVID, still reporting COVID. Yeah, we got out of that, thank God. But it was, a, it was a push, it was a sprint right till the bitter end, you know? And we got more and more samples coming in because, you know, they were still trying to sequence all the Omicron and whatever. And then it just kind of, luckily, people said, okay, we don't need to sequence everything. We can, you know, scale back and, you know, give everyone a break and researchers can go back to doing research rather than public health. I know a couple of things we we probably borrowed a couple of things from you like I I think that our public health labs saw Josh Quick's um, protocols.io and they they adapted it for themselves and and maybe a few other things and I thought that was kind of genius to go straight to something like protocols.io to to make it kind of crowdsourced absolutely yeah it's very handy yeah, so, agreed. That became a great resource for lots of labs around Australia and New Zealand. You know, the Midnight Protocol, the JSE Protocol, Arctic Protocol, and so on. So yeah. you too, okay. We what, developed our own as well. Yeah, yeah, we have Coronahead, we developed our own. So in terms of uh, data governance, though, we weren't given sensitive patient information. We were usually given a lab ID from the clinical lab. So they knew. So when we said this such and such was in this lineage and such and such was in that lineage, they knew what that meant. But we didn't know much more than, say, the patient sex and which county it was from or, you know, things like that. So it's quite vague for us. How secure did you have to be with that data? Because a lab and a, a lab name and a lab ID, if there's records at the lab, 
the pathology so, centre, they can link that to a patient. So, we have to be very careful. So the NHS, the national level IT people came in and audited CLIMB, which is what we're using, the, the virtual machines we're using to make sure it was secure enough. And then they had to have two-factor authentications brought in. But you're right. I mean, it was pseudo-anonymised, but it wasn't fully anonymised. So we had a, an elevated access and you had to sign a lot of contracts and whatever. And I had to promise not to try and reverse, you know, engineer the names, but the UK passed legislation to get rid of all privacy concerns because of public health emergencies. Um, usually it was enough to be able to go back to the hospital or to public health authorities and say, this is the ID, and then they would look it up for us and say, okay, you know, they would do the hard work, you know, of uh, linking all the people and the information on that. Well, that's very impressive that all that stuff's expedited and permissions and it all just kind of worked. Yeah. That didn't happen to that extent in Australia. It was a lot of hard work. And some people, like uh, my colleague, Justin McGrady, who was another PI doing the wet lab side initially, he was ringing public health, random public health people and trying to go through you know, and find the exact people he needed to talk to on the ground who would uh, give him answers. And he did in the end, and it made life a lot easier. We could go direct to local people to discuss outbreaks and cases that we were seeing rather than having to go through maybe a national structure and then back down again and it's a few weeks later by chance you've passed the message along. And when you had to report these results to hospitals or to public health units, was there a, a language gap? At first, yeah, I think so. And, and, and we've got to remember COVID, what you were reporting about COVID changed over time, right? So initially you were talking lineages, and everything were in separate lineages. You didn't have variants. There were no such thing as variants of concern. Remember, mm -hmm. in the early days, you had lineages and you had you had proper epi and you had differences between them and you had distances between each of those lineages that you were trying to communicate. And then it switched over to all this VOC stuff where it's just like, you know, alpha, beta, whatever. And it was just like, which one is it? So that changed over time. But initially there were a lot of gaps of, is this related or not? Because you can say, you can just read off the number and say, well, this is two snips away or three snips away or whatever. But then obviously that's not a meaningful thing to, to a clinician. They say, well, is it the same thing? Is it, is it, does that mean this patient got this from this other person or not? And I think Andrew did a lot of reporting back. In the early days, clinic. I didn't know what to report. I was making it up as I went along, to be quite frank. And so in the early days, I was telling the local infection control doctors and the local public health authority. We didn't, I didn't know what to report, so I ended up doing things like, say, given the, the local medics, in, in this county, we were seeing, I don't know, 10 different clusters or 100 different clusters, and it's going up and down, you know, kind of like a, a weather forecast or, you know, an overview of what's kind of happening in the region and then which which areas have hotspots and which connected stuff and which don't and things like that and then the first real report that uh, I remember had impact was on care homes where we, uh, we were asked to look at a particular care home which had a, a higher mortality rate and they want to know is there SNPs in there that are make, making it a problem and when we actually looked at it we found there was like this particular lineage of two SNPs that were unique and then we looked on a map and we could see a heat map of the, the postcodes, the zip codes and could see that it was, uh, you know, very old people over the age of 80 in particular little places on the map and I was like, hang on a second, there's a problem here. And then that when he went and looked further, there are actually care homes, six different care homes and the care homes were infecting each other and they're they doing very well at keeping out all the strains and clusters from the community but not from infecting, cross-infecting, obviously staff moving around and things like that. 
so that was a, kind of our first kind of impactful thing. But then what we found was it took weeks to get the public health body interested in, in it. And by that time, obviously, the outbreaks had finished. But we then had the established link so that, you know, next time something came up, we could actually take action immediately. So I don't know if I can give the detail, but at the time, the real world reality was, was that you had lockdowns so people couldn't see their nan in the care homes. So there wasn't like a community transmission. But then the care home staff were all on rotation amongst the different, you know, different sites. Exactly the same problem in Australia. Yeah. There agency workers that move between sites. Yeah, and so when you th- in hindsight you go, well, obviously that's a problem, but I guess the me- the logistics, the mechanics of it, are like how else are you going to staff the care homes though? Australia ban- we banned it in Victoria. Australia banned. We're working at multiple aged care homes I believe at some point wow. to restrict that inter-home transmission problem. Yeah, but that was, yeah, that was, that was like... But th- there were bigger problems like people weren't being paid if they were sick, you know, or had to self-isolate and like care home workers are not paid a lot of money, it's usually like the minimum wage type jobs and so there were those issues had to be addressed as well. Yeah, did UK introduce legislation to help those people yeah australia they also did, yeah. did similar we had you know salary support for when you had to go on covid leave and stuff you could just fill in a form no questions asked and you would get your two-week salary yeah then they went the other way and they went for intensive testing and then uh, people work in care homes and in some cases residents were being tested intensively and those are being directed to particular testing sites uh, testing centers and then they were being sequenced as a priority so, you know, they went from one extreme to the other. So bad surveillance to really good surveillance. Can you tell us a bit about the states, Lee? Like, given, I know you worked at the CDC, and the CDC isn't a central authority. There's all state labs and county labs. And how, what, what, what was CDC's role in the sort of the pandemic that you, as you understand it? I am I'm going to say as much as I can say. And then, like, I don't think I know enough. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, it's a hard question to represent a uh, whole country of 300 million people or whatever. It's it's so federated. It's so... We we supply a lot of information and help coordinate a lot, but then the state health labs are really... They're the actual authority for most things that happen, especially with COVID. And so, I don't know, I guess we, we, we provided a lot of support. At one point, I went back to the COVID response as the technical team lead, actually, for the for helping out with bioinformatics in the States. We got a lot of stuff done as when I was technical lead. I, I was able to coordinate with a state lab and, and, a, and a few partners who adapted Josh Quick's protocol, especially Joel Savinsky, and were able to come up with a, other protocols and coordinate with other people to, to basically make something more centralized and help out the States more. Um, and, and I don't know, just overall, we, we did help coordinate with bioinformatics, but it's, it's coordination, you know, it's not something I can be like front lines, like how you guys are describing it with, with the being front lines with like politicians or decision makers, not all the time. Yeah. I mean, Australia is also a federation. We haven't, yeah. we only have seven or so states compared <laughs> to your 50 or whatever. And yeah, we faced 
we don't have a CDC, so we don't have a national, like, official kind of CDC. And there's actually talks right now that uh, to set up an Australian CDC for future pandemic preparedness, but they'll never have full authority. And I think we would have the same problems you have. We don't have full authority over the states, but you have a more a coordinating role and a role in sort of kind of getting people to agree. And I guess most importantly, share data. Can you tell us how how the counties shared data or the state labs shared data? Was there a central repository or how did how did it work or was it more ad hoc? I again I don't think I can speak totally towards it just because of my lack of knowledge there's a lot going on but eventually the states and local health labs got coordinated enough where they were in the beginning they were sending samples to CDC to get them genome sequenced and eventually they started all doing it on their own and those sequences all got deposited either in GISAID or NCBI and so we were able to coordinate on that level. And what about you guys in the UK? As I understand it, kind of the England Public Health England, which has now been renamed, right? Yeah, UK HSA Health Security Agency. But in the UK as well, it's four countries yep. with different laws and different ways of doing things. You know, because public health has devolved to nations. So like Wales did it very differently to England, you know. But obviously different sized countries. Wales decided, oh, we'll sequence everything. We'll do it through one system. You know, one. Kind of coordinated effort, and that worked really, really well. Is that the COG UK that so we all heard about? Well, COG was sitting outside of that and talking to each of the nations, and maybe facilitating data sharing in a way that might not have happened if they were tr- just trying to do it directly, the old-fashioned way. Okay, so COG UK was sort of a bit like CDC coordinating the sort of the members. We had nowhere near that kind of, no, it's just a bunch of ragtag academics sticking their nose where it doesn't belong. You were invited. (laughs) It did belong. And in Australia, we kind of rapidly built working groups and committees, you know, with representatives from every state. And so, yeah, we kind of had to build that infrastructure just like COG did I guess in a way. It's interesting in other countries because we've had other people from talk about their COVID responses so people from Canada and and so on and it's interesting to note that health predominantly is considered a a provincial problem. The I guess the philosophy is is that a, a particular region will have its own specific health issues and you need to fund it at accordingly with that and you need people there on the ground to actually explain what's going on and they should have autonomy over it and what's odd is that that worked but that that doesn't work in a in a pandemic where the the pathogen doesn't care about your your little provincial borders it doesn't understand your jurisdictions and a lot of agencies had this issue that they didn't have this open data sharing agreements they didn't have MTAs, all the, all the sort of bureaucratic stuff to be able to talk with each other properly. And often it was some other entity that was initially being a broker between all of them. So in the UK, you had COG that came out from outside of that doing it. You had Oztracker that was coming outside of doing it and so on. Like all these different, it came out of, and on the, on the UK side, what happened over time as much of what you were, what Lee was saying, was a lot of it was on was on the cog partners and then slowly the capacity was built within each of the health agencies and then they've sort of we've given it back to them over time can i say as an outsider to to uk like i had no idea that each of the countries like it's a 
the laws and everything are at that level. So but, it's it's so the, interesting that I, it's kind I'd of evolving still, to CDC. I still don't understand, because I'm talking as an Australian, I don't get it. <laughs> it's like the United Kingdom is a country, but then Scotland and Wales is a country. It's a country within a country. It's like, okay... You were born in London. Surely you should know. Yeah, this. but I left before I went to school here, so I didn't get ex- I didn't get it explained to me. Yeah, it's quite complicated. <laughs> British Isles versus United Kingdom versus Great Britain. They're is, all different. Uh, uh, is it okay to say British Isles these days? I don't know. Well, the Republic of Ireland isn't that, so no. No, so there you go. I don't know what we call. It. And Lee, we forgive you. You're an American, so we, we thank you. We, 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 <laughs> we expect you to be ignorant of the rest of the world. Lee has finally learned how to pronounce Norwich after after a couple of years. Yeah, but we're not changing the intro. And, no. what, and what's that Norwich? City, what's that city in the Midlands of England that starts with Berm? How do you pronounce that? Zero clue. Is it okay? So that's zero clue because it sounds like you're about to send me a trick question. No. Is it Birmingham? Yeah, that's pretty that's good. Correct, yeah. Okay. It's not Birmingham. That's that's in the US, and Birmingham is in the UK. <laughs> okay. That was that was an on the fly guess because I thought that was a trick question. Okay, I'm lucky because in Australia we have a lot of UK place names, so we've learned how to pronounce everything. Okay, and I but even Australians don't know how to pronounce. it. I lived on Greenwich Crescent many years ago, but everyone would say Greenwich Crescent, and it just yes. came to me every time I heard it. And we should probably delete this bit of the rant from the podcast. No, go for <laughs> it. Keep this. I just learned a few few things during our, our, our snack break from the hackathon where it's like Leicester instead of Leicester or something. Yeah, yeah. Leicester. Worcestershire. 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 So I, I'm learning a few more of those things. And then how do you pronounce the city where we're in right now? Bath. Bath? Not Bath? Not Bath. Everyone has been saying Bath, Bath to me on the way and I, I can't bring myself to say it. <laughs> should, I, should I be saying Bath? There's a divide in the UK so you know. <laughs> There's no consensus. But it's dance versus dance. It's the same thing. It's a common... That vowel, different regional dialects. And even in Australia, we have a division on the, the vowels, some of these vowels. Okay. Dance, trance, and dance mm. or trance. Like, I'm a trance dance person, but if you go to Adelaide in Australia, it's the other way around. What so, about yes, is it... Well, how would you say... I say bath, but... Yeah, I, say, right? I say bath just to annoy bath. people. <laughs> Because I think that's meant to be the lower brow pronunciation, so... Interesting. Yeah. That's what I say, bath. I just say bath. Bath, and, bath. Stuff it. <laughs> and, and do you necessarily pronounce it the same way as if you're getting clean at home in a, in a tub? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's bath. To me, the they're the same. Yeah, I take a okay. bath. Take well, a bath. you're going to see the Roman bath soon enough. You know, don't swim in them. But, uh, you can't swim... But, yeah, we, I keep having to tell people, you can't swim in the Roman baths at bath. <laughs> well, there are special places I'm sure you can go where they yeah, but give not, you the Roman bath experience. But not in the actual, you know, because there are some, you can visit Roman baths where you can actually swim in them. Yeah. The 2,000-year-old bath and you can still use it. Cool. Has it uh, been cleaned ever? I, I should hope so. <laughs> well, the water is a strange color, you know, yeah. and that's an indication that it's not very uh, safe. Is that not spring water here with like... It's kind of... It's it a like spring. bluey, which usually means it's heavily alkaline, like so dangerous that you can't go near it. Mm. I've been noticing the tap water tastes like maybe a little sulfuric. Is that, is that also... No, that's water? just the weird thing of the UK. They love boar water. Okay. Yeah. yeah, like it rains so much here, but like for an Australian, that's really bizarre. Yeah. And also the water here is very hard. It has a high salt content. Soap doesn't lather. 
here yeah. because of the water. So been in Australia, our water's soft. We don't have a high carbonate or water salt content. So soap lathers up probably crazy. Nice. Good thing you don't have hair torsten, otherwise it'd be wrecked by the time you leave. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saving a fortune on shampoo. Speaking of pronunciation, <laughs> how do you say uh, data or data or phage or phage? Rusher or racer. <laughs> so, oh man, the, I, I change, I flip and change. Data, I used to say data only, but now I say data. Like, I got, you know, Commander Data on Star Trek, but it was data. And then, what, is, what was the other? Farge, phage and phage. I say phage, but sometimes I change to phage. I sort of adapt to what people around me are saying to fit in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phage data. It is router, like, it, it is router in Australia, but I, I just can't. So okay. I just can't make myself say it, so I just say router. Well, well, <laughs> router might be cons- considered the wrong thing well, in so Australia. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's it's referring um, to a, yeah, an activity in Australia. Oh, didn't know that. Well, what route, route, routing refers to when two people really love each other. Yeah, so when the, you know that packet is being rooted through here, like yeah. Yeah, it means it's royally um, stuffed. <laughs> well, there's the it's a, a famous Australian meme to do with like whether you should have a comma, the Oxford comma, yeah. which you may know is the comma before the last and in a list, whether you have a comma or not. Or so what? What's the famous Australian thing where it's a picture of a wombat and it says, "Eats roots and leaves." <laughs> so. It's got two meanings. <laughs> if you yeah. We have eats, shoots, and leaves. Yeah. For, for like <laughs> a panda. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, you might, you might not believe us, but if you want to validate it, I think for one of the world football World Cups, they had a promotion, which was they had a big banner, and they said, like, root for your team. You know? And in Australia, they changed it to, I think, it's like, cheer for your team instead. Yeah. So all the Australian publicity stuff literally changed the word just because they realized, like, we can't say root for your team because that just... Yeah, we don't want to encourage that. That's not <laughs> yeah. Because it also has connotations about what football players should do the night before a big match, whether they should or they shouldn't be allowed to. I think this is a thing in baseball. and They have root. to relax. <laughs> is it? I've never different played... coaches have different rules, I believe. Yes. For their rules. Yes. <laughs> We've horribly, horribly drifted off. We were talking about yeah. serious, serious matters. You have a mem- you have pronunciation problems in the US as well, like Arkansas, not Arkansas. It's Ar- Arkansas. Arkansas. No, it's yeah, yeah, it's Arkansas. Arkansas, yeah, and we only knew that from Bill. Clinton. But then it's Ca- but it's Kansas. What, if it's Kansas, why is it Arkansas? I know. <laughs> and the other thing is I found out that people from Missouri, a lot of them don't pronounce it Missouri, yeah. they say Missouri. Missouri. They don't say Missouri. Yeah. Or Missouri sometimes. Missouri. Yeah. Missouri. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm not from that part of the country, so it's everything's a little foreign to me when they bring that up to me too. It's like the UK versus all the individual countries confuse me too. That's where we were. What is the UK to you? What do you think the UK is? The UK the to me is the place I fly into. What, what is the UK? What, is it a single country? It's not a country, is it the United Kingdom? The UK to me it feels like a country. But what? I guess it's obviously wrong, but it's like, it feels like it's a country. What country are you in right now, Lee? Can you tell me? I would say I was in the UK. Yeah, but but I, know, but I know the answer is England. Yeah, no, no, it's England. 
So it's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So you are in the United Kingdom of Great Britain yes. and Northern Ireland in England. You're in Great Britain as well, which is a big island. Okay. Okay. So you're and you're also in England. You're in Europe as well, but not in the European Union. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So England, <laughs> Wales, and Scotland are on the same chunk, but Northern Ireland is on a separate chunk. Yeah. With Ireland. And I've. That's right. There's nothing else on that <laughs> island, right? No. no, no. The Isle of Ireland. <laughs> but then there's that. What are the the other islands like? Channel Islands, yeah, so there are Crown Dependencies yeah. and... There's Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Isle, Isle of Wight, yeah. the... Do they the have tax evasion things there in any of those? Guernsey it's not tax evasion, they set their own yeah, tax laws and they just decide not to, you know, charge people tax. Noise. Yeah. <laughs> so they are Crown Dependencies, so the Queen is the head of state, but they're not part of the United Kingdom. But they're part of Great Britain. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I don't know. There's a table that tells you what. There's, like, a, there's, there's a, a, there's a, a matrix. There's a some kind of complex Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah Venn diagram. That's the one. Do you think Charles has to learn all that before he becomes king? I'm sure he knows it already. <laughs> he's he's been he's, my he's been an understudy for the last seven decades. So thanks, Tors, for joining us today. And thanks, Lee, for actually seeing you in the flesh for a change. Yeah, uh, did we say this already that this is the first time that we're well, doing actually, this in yeah, person? doing this in person all, <laughs> all together. Mind, everyone. <laughs> so yeah, and uh, we were just talking about just catching up and seeing what we've been doing for the last few years and talking mainly COVID because that's what we were doing. So yeah, see you next time. Yeah, great to talk with you again. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.